Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. My guest today is Brady Forrest. He's the uh, co-founder of Highway One, the hardware accelerator, as well as Ignite Talks. Uh, Brady, it's, it's been a long time. I think last time we hung out, we were, we were both in Tokyo together, do you remember? Yeah, we were roaming around uh, during the Web 2.0 Expo era. How long ago was that? It was maybe seven, seven, eight years ago? It would have been like 2010, 2009, 2010. Because I, I remember we were, we, were, we were there with the Make uh, Magazine guys as well. And, mm-hmm. uh, they took us on. Uh, I have a distinct memory of going to this. It was almost like this underground nuclear bunker, which was Sony's advanced research labs. Oh yeah, we went with Phil Tyrone and Lady Ada, yeah. aka Lamore. Yeah, yeah, and then we got to see the dancing egg, and then we went to Ikibara. Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, we, we met June uh, Rakimoto, who was doing these crazy, um, you know, interfaces where you could dial on your hand uh, a telephone. Yeah, and. Uh, I remember walking around Toku Hands with uh, uh, with Tim. <laughs> that was a that was a fun trip. I love Tokyo. It was actually a, a lot of the stuff on that trip inspired the book that I, I, I wrote actually in the following year, Future Tainment. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, it. Um, but you know, I, I don't know if I told you this, but uh, you know, we we first met. I think it was about ten years ago um, at uh, China Fu and Etec. But I, I really owe you a great debt of gratitude because uh, you gave me a slot to speak at Ignite at that time. And that was one of the first public speeches I ever gave. Really? Yeah. You have, well, you have mastered the format. You have well, done quite well. Well, what I was going to say is, I mean, that's pretty much become what I, what I do these days. So, you know, uh, there was a kind of a parallel universe where I didn't mm-hmm. speak at eTech and uh, I don't know, I guess be working in an accounting firm or something. Wow. Well, the world has benefited. (laughs) But, you know, that's (laughs) one of the things about that I love about Ignite. So many people, it was their first opportunity to do public speaking. Right. And it's kind of the Ignite origin stories. It's it's yeah, it's awesome. It's why I keep doing it. Tell me, you, you've actually um, you've actually taken it over now. So it's not part of O'Reilly. It's actually it, yeah. It's actually in the Brady Forest world. Yep. So back in 2006, when I threw the first event with Bree Pettis, who went on to found MakerBot. Yeah. Uh, I was. We were both working at O'Reilly, and when it started to take off, and people around the world started copying the event and making it their own, we just decided we would let we would house it with O'Reilly, and we ran it while we were there. And then after I left, kind of stepped away. And about a year ago, I just got kind of a bug in me that I wanted to really kind of dive back into it. And so I talked to O'Reilly and they let me take it out. We should, we should explain a little bit for the listeners the, uh, the format uh, because it's not, a, it's not a normal talk, right? No, no, it's really, it's a unique form of torture. Uh, <laughs> for the audience or for the speaker? For the speakers to save the audience from the speakers. But I think the speakers also benefit. Right. So every speaker gets 20 slides. 15 seconds of slide that auto advance for a total of five minutes on stage. And, you know, what happens there is that speakers it sounds like, have constraints. Sounds like, it sounds like Flappy Bird for talking. It is Flappy Bird. You just have to keep going. <laughs> don't stop. If your slides don't advance as fast as you want, you should keep talking. If they take a little too long, it's fine. 
what 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 does constraint tend to do? I mean, I, I remember, you know, speaking to Chris Anderson, you know, about why he chose seven, you know, the the kind of arbitrary length at mm-hmm. ten. I said, was there some kind of science behind it? And he said it was just, it was basically just negotiation anchoring. Because if he said twenty minutes, everyone would speak for twenty five, but seventeen seems so precise. Yeah. Well, we we even make it simpler because your slides actually stop at five minutes, and it goes to it goes to blank. So they know they have to stop in five minutes. So we really only let them go up to maybe 5.15 in terms of talking time. But when you have a blank canvas, you can just talk about whatever. And maybe you put in two anecdotes when really you only needed one. Maybe you make five points when really you only had three strong ones. And so people talk about the most important thing and they think of the best way to frame it. And because they have 20 slides and only 20 slides, then it allows them to be creative in those in that manner. You know, I kind of liken it to websites were one way, and then the iPad came out, and suddenly there were big images everywhere, and people could move around. And, and we started we, found, we started scrolling rather than clicking, right? Yeah. yeah, and then you found websites that became more that way. I've had speakers come in who are experienced speakers pitch their product. They come in, they try and explain their business, they kind of explain the concept around it. And they realize there's a whole different way of explaining the concept. Uh, Michelle Lamb actually wrote uh, an article about it for Fast Company, yeah. about how she now pitches her business different because of her Ignite experience. I guess because the slides are auto-advancing and, and they've got a fixed time to it, do you find at some, at some level you, you actually disconnect from the slides, that they become visual background? It just has to be a flow. Right. You have to keep pace of where you are but it's really, in some ways, more about live editing and knowing how to transition than it is about hitting your specific points. Right. Quentin Hardy, who used to be the New York Times tech editor, after he did his first Ignite, he's like, this is different. You just go. <laughs> so the, the best ones you've seen, what, what did they do that made it so compelling? Uh, they booked in humor. They rode with the humor. They made jokes along the way about any sort of like fumbles and like kind of acknowledged the process. But really, they stuck to one core point. Right. And maybe let off with a story, maybe let off with that point, but then always circled back around at the end it, to really it, tie it up into a bit. But it, it, it doesn't really work when it's scripted, does it? I mean, TED Talks are highly scripted in the sense that they, they tend to actually force you to kind of practice it endlessly so it really fits in a, in, in a mold. Well, I, a friend of mine uh, did a talk one time and he actually booked a lolcat midway through <laughs> so that he would get a laugh break so that he could sip water. And he had scripted those first three minutes, but he was an actor. Right. Whereas I've seen other people who come from maybe the academic world and they're so dense with information and the crowd is waiting for the chance to just kind of like express their gratitude that when laughter comes, they're not prepared for it and they totally lose track. So you have to be very fluid and know that, you know, for each slide, you have one or two points that you're, you know, let's say for each slide, 15 seconds, you have about three sentences, but you may only get to one or two of them because something went wrong earlier, you forgot something, laughter again, or you paused. And so you have to be prepared to drop 
that third sentence and maybe pick up that point later or recognize that it belongs on the cutting room floor? <laughs> I know when I did it, it was very hard. So uh, it, was, it, was definitely, it was definitely great training for speakers. You know, when I, when I think about that Tokyo trip we did, um, it was really a turning point in 2007. I mean, we probably would have, if we'd looked hard enough, would have seen Steve Jobs because I think he was sniffing around NTT Docomo those days as well. He, he basically where he got inspiration for the iPhone. Mm -hmm. And you know, I think there was a sort of this sort of this this turning point where hardware was suddenly becoming you know more accessible. You could you could do things with it, and and of course we were there with the make uh, the whole make maker movement, which is beginning mm -hmm. then as well. Yeah. Um, so tell me a little bit about your journey since then that I guess led led you into doing hardware incubation and acceleration. Yeah. So I stayed at O'Reilly uh, till 2012, and then decided to look at different ecosystems and how they would benefit and where did I want to be and I wanted to be in hardware and I was approached by Liam Casey the founder of PCH which is a large supply chain management company yeah to see if I wanted to start a hardware accelerator that became highway one and since then I've shepherded 74 companies invested in them worked with them each for four months here in San Francisco and some of them are companies you may have heard of, like Navdi, which is a heads-up display for cars. Oh, yeah. So it's kind of like an AR screen. So they were in our very first class. Ringley, which is semi-precious stones and jewelry that does notifications. Q, which does at-home medical diagnostics. So once they're through... I remember them. What happened to Q, actually? Uh, they are in development still. Yeah. They are... Because uh, that, that's actually got like um, all kinds of diagnostics, right? And you can yeah. have different packs. Yep. Yeah. So yeah. influenza, they're partnering with Johnson & Johnson on an HIV test, vitamin D. So, you know, clinical, but also health and tracking. Right. So they, those were all early companies of ours. Uh, Modbot is an industrial robotics platform that all have different ways of programming robots that are a lot easier than the current industrial languages. Right. So somewhere between Mindstorms and, uh, and an industrial robot. Yes. <laughs> but how, how do you define hardware? Because essentially all of these things, if they're not connected to the web, uh, are, are, or, or have a high degree of software in them as well. Oh, yeah. No, I view it as investing in companies that use hardware to deploy their software. Right. So in almost all of these cases, they want to abstract away the hardware. They don't actually care about the physicality of it. However, to get their software out there, to prove it, they have to build the first couple of products themselves. And maybe that ends up being their revenue model is selling the hardware. But in a lot of cases, you know, they want to deploy their OS to other platforms. Like there's no reason that Modbot actually has to make robotic arms, right? Once they have their, their robot OS. This is, in a sense, this allows you to address markets that the standard smartphone as sort of the universal piece of hardware mm -hmm. won't let you do because it doesn't have the requisite sensors or physicality. Yeah, or, or high-level access that you need. Right. Yeah. So how, how does the hardware ecosystem look different? I mean, what, what, what makes hardware more challenging to execute on than doing great software? Well... I want to touch back on the maker movement. The maker movement yeah. is really what enabled kind of this prototyping revolution. And so back then, you were just seeing Arduino come out. Since then, there's been Raspberry Pi. There's now MakerBots and other 3D printers. So you can go, you can, you as a non-electrical engineer, with just as much training as like making a web page, can make an LED blink. Hmm. You can use an Arduino, and you can build a prototype, and you can print out the casing for it for a MakerBot or you can get a Glowforge and print out an icer casing for it. 
And you can go to tech shop and rent tools by the hour, and that becomes kind of your IDE for making your hardware. And so you've seen this blossoming of different hardware ideas. However, after the prototyping part, it's really still very hard. Hmm. Manufacturing, building something at scale, you know, beyond say a thousand or five thousand. The whole supply chain piece. That part is incredibly challenging. Right. And still the domain most often of engineers. And so that's what Highway One, that's where Highway One exists. We exist to help the people who've come in and prototyped and developed some functional technology, proven that customers want it, and then we try and teach them how to do manufacturing and prepare them to getting it to scale. Was the maker movement something genuinely new, or was it kind of got its origins in the, I guess, the computer club and the people that sort of you know self-assembled computers, or even right back to tinkering with, you know, arts and crafts in their garage? I think that the maker movement was a way of reclaiming a lot of technology that had been locked down. Right. And so it was a way to use your old camera. It was a way to make your camera yours again. After you know you got the new camera and you don't know what to do with that Canon Elf that's sitting on your on your uh, shelf. Like, Cause, cause turns so, out there's other things you can do with it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that definitely resonates. I mean, I, I certainly grew up as, as a kid with a soldering iron in a hand, you know, and it was mm-hmm. just part of building electric electronic kits that actually never worked. <laughs> I spent a lot of time in the Boy Scouts doing stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. but but the, but it's sort of where the maker movement evolved was it? It, it really sort of became this. I guess, laboratory for fast prototyping ideas. Yes. And, I mean, also making one-off things. And I think the maker movement's been very good for that. Especially and with Etsy, art. right? Like, oh, yeah. yeah. Etsy, I mean, yeah, I think you see it on crowdfunding sites where people develop an idea and then they try to release it. But I think uh, where there started to be some confusion is when people would prototype and then crowdfund and then not know how to manufacture, right. not know how to scale. Well, what is, what is the relationship now between venture capital and crowdfunding? Because it, it kind of feels in some ways that uh, some of the people now going to crowdfunding actually don't need the funding. I would view it as a way of gathering your community. Right, so it's as actually a way crowd of marketing. Having an event. Yes, yeah. that, for a lot of companies, that's what it is. Yeah. Uh, for many others, it's they literally have no choice. However, I think they should be very, the, the problem there is if they need to be, they need to not lie to themselves about how realistic it is that they'll be able to ship this product. Because yeah. they may set a goal of $100,000 or $50,000, but the reality is they need half a million. And if they don't raise that, they should actually return all the money. <laughs> and not just like flounder around. And too often you see that. So I've personally stopped doing a lot of like personal crowdfund investments unless I think the product's gonna ship very soon. Right. Or they're doing a very small amount and it is more of a boutique art project. So like I invested in the CFIUS, or invested, I, I supported the CFIUS table on, on Kickstarter, which is this beautiful table where there's sand trapped and a ball on the sand and there's magnets underneath that move it around in patterns. Right, it sounds like a Zen Buddhist uh, exactly. sand garden. And he's only making a couple hundred of them. That is exactly what Kickstarter is for. Right. But but do, but doing a consumer product which is meant to ship 5 million units, is, it's probably not going to complete, right? 
Well, so if they say that they aren't sure when they're going to, or if they say it's like more than six months out from when the campaign ends, then that in my mind means they have no idea when it's shipping. They have not begun the necessary preparations, and you don't know when it will get to you. If I was to think of an ecosystem where you see this kind of rapid prototyping and release at scale, it, it's somewhere like Shenzhen. Uh, uh, Shenzhen is a great place. We take our high volume companies there every class. What's it like? Well, there's tons of factories, hundred or thousands of factories. Uh, but really the heart of it, and what I think people think about when they say Shenzhen, is Wajan Bay. Hmm. which is the electronics market. It's a 16 square block area with high rises. And there's like the LED high rise and the motor high rise. And that is just lots of different vendors, all experimenting, all trying to find different ways of uh, selling their products, be it LEDs or be it Bluetooth connected mouse phones. And so you'll (laughs) see a lot of like sample products that are just super crazy. And those are some of the, you know, I have a small Bluetooth uh, headset that actually looks like a phone and actually you can dial it. And I've got race car phones, Hello Kitty phones. I'm sure when I go back in a couple of weeks, I'll be able to get like a Kylo Ren phone. And, and where, 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 where do these come from? Are, are there essentially just um, industrial designers sitting on the fringe of this thing, churning out thousands of variations? These are people who have access to factories. They have engineering know-how and they have cheap parts. Right. And they know that they can demonstrate what they're building you know, this is a way of demonstrating what they can do. And it's also a way of like seeing if something might take off and make right. them some money. And so there's a lot of copying across these different factories and a lot of sharing. Uh, Bunny Wong, who we who's at Chenifu and lives in Singapore but spends a lot of time in Shenzhen, calls it Guangxi. So it's Connections. kind of a different type of open. Yeah. And people who contribute back to the ecosystem sort of like a less formal GitHub, get to stay in and pull out. And if you don't contribute back, then you're kind of, you kind of get blocked out. Where's the contributions in, in terms of like new ways of designing things? or New ways of designing things, sharing manufacturing processes, right. sharing chips, sharing other vendors. And you'll see that, that like a design that comes up in one booth will then spread like wildfire throughout the other booths. How, how do you go from you know, creating a wooden iPad that runs Android to becoming Foxconn. Like what, you know, what, what, because it seems like they're at both ends of the, uh, the spectrum. It's not like a logical evolution path for a lot of these little vendors. I would say it would take picking the right customer because Foxconn scaled with the iPhone. Yeah. And they, you know, they were partnered with Apple. And so they were able to scale up with them. And so when you go in as a small company, to work with the CM, they vet you. They make sure that you have the money, that you have the know-how, and they want to know why your product is going to do well, so that next year you'll double or triple triple your order. Right. You have to make sure that they're going to be trustworthy with your product, that they'll ship on time, that the quality will be good, and that you can have good, good communication. So, from an innovation standpoint, what what do you think we can learn from these um, Shenzhen manufacturers and that ecosystem? Into that sort of missing from the hardware mentality of Western companies? Well, hardware doesn't have to be that hard. You should do small runs. You should not be afraid to experiment with hardware. I mean, I think too often entrepreneurs here in Silicon Valley think like, oh, I have this vision for a product. Right. 
I'm going to make it. It's hermetically sealed. <laughs> yes, it is like Athena birthed from Zeus' head. Yeah. And it's going to be more of a messy product process than that. So it's better to make a less than perfect product. Make five, ten of them. Send it around the country and get feedback. Then do it again. Then do it again. And it is much better to have shipped like a hundred kind of eh, mediocre products that perform a test than to go do that amazing Kickstarter. But we, we, we would tolerate that from a lucky gold star, but maybe not from an LG. Um, mm -hmm. or, or a sort of a, a kind of a, a manufacturer we'd never heard of, but certainly not an Apple. So, I mean, it's, it's, at some point when you get successful, does your ability to be able to innovate like that just sort of evaporate? Well, they have to start testing with their own employees. Right. And they have to have beta groups. And they have to, again, I mean, in their case, like they have all user research departments. And when they were doing the Apple Watch, you know, they walked around with like phones taped to their wrist. And they still came up with that original interface. So do you think, I mean, now that these tools um, are becoming more available, and I think you mentioned the Glowforge and there's like the Carbon 3D, and mm -hmm. I, I mean, you're sort of moving away from doing rough extruded prototypes to things that are almost like production quality. Uh, is, is hardware going to be something that essentially you, you, you can start to modify yourself, you know, even as a consumer? Um, is it going to become more open? So, sort of. Right. So Carbon, Glowforge, all those things will make things more accessible. Yeah. However, neither one will change the manufacturing process at scale. Yeah. You will not be able to manufacture with Carbon at scale right. anytime soon. Because making a one-off, you'll never get the quality of something geared up. It depends on the materials you want. It might be fine, but it's it's too slow and it's too expensive. Yeah. So to you know do injection molding though, like maybe someday and maybe they're already doing this at some scale, they'll use carbon three D prints to make the molds to then use for injection molding. Um, what I think is going to really block using three D printing at the manufacturing level is one the materials to the throughput, but then three, also the assembly. Right. Like, it's complex to assemble something, especially if you have chips and electronics, and then you're putting in the enclosure. Right. And so we may end up it's like not buying, having... It's like buying an, an Ikea chest of drawers where you not only have to put it together, you have to extrude it first. Yes, <laughs> yes. And sometimes you hire a task rabbit to make your Ikea furniture. And in this case, what may happen is, instead of having, like, a 3D printer at home, there's a site that you go on and you say, I want this, and then it goes to an assembly house that prints it out and assembles it, and then it's shipped to you or you go pick it up. Right, so this is not of, made here. It's like a decentralized network of CNC machines. And, mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it's funny, isn't it? Because there's, there's a lot of discussion at the moment about loss of jobs and automation, where factories should be. But the funny thing is, is that you know, even China itself, they're finding it too expensive to make things there increasingly. They're yes. offshoring it to other markets. But the future may be actually decentralized manufacturing where the IP could be anywhere in the world, but it's just the final point of production is closest to the consumer. I think that a lot of manufacturing is going to become local everywhere. Right. There will be local manufacturing centers here in the Bay Area. I mean, LA is huge. Just because, because shipping is just something that you, is a cost that you just cannot get around. There's the, that cost, but then also, say you're a startup here and you want to do those small runs. You don't want to start off flying to China 
just to produce a couple thousand. Hmm. You'd much rather do it here. And then once you replicate it here, then you can move it elsewhere. So you, do you think eventually this is something that Amazon will get into? Because, um, I mean, they're already buying planes and warehouses that if it actually makes sense that you buy a consumer product from Amazon, they'll actually manufacture it in a depot like a kilometer away from whoever bought it. I assume that they already are. I mean, that's Amazon Basics. Right. I don't know if they own the plants, though. But, I mean, I have a number of friends who have fulfilled by Amazon businesses. And I could easily see them starting to manufacture products for people. I think Amazon is in the business of building infrastructure and eking as much money out of it as possible from yeah. whoever will give them the right amount of cash. Given what you've seen and understand about supply chains, does it make much sense to force countries to locate manufacturing in certain places? I mean, can, can you do you think you actually, in this world where we're in now, chop up supply chains in such a way to say that this is actually made somewhere? I think that that is... I don't think you can escape real-world economics, that certain things are made in certain areas, and that, you know, in some ways, people route through Hong Kong for the tax breaks. Yeah. Um, people end up locating in Shenzhen, not necessarily for the technical expertise, but because the ecosystem's there. Their ecosystem is there, and if they run out of one part, they know that a similar part is made across the valley. Right. And if you are 3,000 miles away from Shenzhen, and you're doing your assembly, and you run out of that part, you are now 3,000 miles away from that part, as opposed to just another hour. How do you think the whole copyright and intellectual property theft thing's gonna play out? Because, you know, it's one thing to steal a design. It's another thing where you can almost, you know, hijack the 3D printer and, and literally create the identical same thing that's being bought by someone else on the other side of the world. Well, I mean, and that's one of the reasons why MakerBot had to close up. Oh, really? Was there were, they were contributing a lot of open source hardware and there were people who were copying their designs and then undercutting them without paying for R&D. Huh. And that's one of the things, is like open source software. There was actually a category on Pirate Bay, I think, called Visibles, which was you know stolen 3D uh, print. Oh, sure, well, Thingiverse, I mean, it's filled yeah. with stuff like that. But this was like actual open source hardware. And the thing is with open source software, generally people contribute back. Yeah. So if you're using Apache or you're using whatever, like those companies start to contribute patches back, they make it better. Nobody was doing that to MakerBot. And so to save the company, they had to close that up. And so I don't think there's been a good system for figuring out open source hardware. Now, when I'm working with a company that is deploying their software through hardware, hmm. we always worry about getting copied. We don't want it to get copied, but we know it'll happen, but that's why the software matters so much. And that's why we depend on the software and the data and the services and future hardware products for right. the company and less that current product. Because the, the physical configuration, I think, as you said before, is just the delivery platform. Uh, the software, the cloud-based services, I mean, they're much harder to copy. Yes. Uh, I mean, you can buy a fake iPhone in, 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 uh, in Shenzhen, but it, it won't have the Apple Store on it. Yes, and I bought a fake iPhone years <laughs> ago, and it was amazing. Like, it was totally amazing, but it was just, it was Android, like a really old version of Android with a really awesome fake Apple <laughs> on the back. Um, yeah, no, it's pretty amazing, like, what can be done, but they can't fake the software. You, being so involved with hardware startups the last few years, you probably have a unique perspective on the Internet of Things. 
and you know when you when you hear analysts and um, you know telcos talking about it, it it's it, it's always this sort of abstract cloud of of things uh, you know just talking to each other in, in ways that consume lots of bandwidth. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you actually think it's going to play out? It, it, is the Internet of Things going to be really a, a sort of an ordered you know app store of things working together seamlessly, or is it more going to be a wild west of of random things sharing data? Um, I think it's going to be a wild west of things sharing data. I think a lot of it will be routed through your voice assistant, either be it Alexa or right. Google Home. Uh, so and, do, and do you think phone. that's a real catalyst for bringing all this together? Absolutely. Why? Because it gives it one central interface, whereas with your phone, people are tired of pulling out their phones. Yeah. And often, at least at home, when you're at home, you want to just interact with your environment naturally, and you don't want to have to use your phone. Right. So it's so an interface your phone issue. to configure, but not to control. Because it's actually disappointing how few things actually work with your phone in terms of home automation and even even you know even medical trackers. That you would have thought by now that there would have been a much bigger universe, but it just hasn't really come together. And I think you're going to see that the desire for Apple-level design continues to carry through the industry. Right. Now, the problem comes is that not everybody can do Apple-level design at Apple-level prices. Right. Nobody else can CNC aluminum for their product at any sort of cost. And so companies are going to have to continue to figure out, like, how can they get that level of design while not... Uh, outpricing themselves. And this is not just design, it's basically material science as well, isn't it? It's material science and then also software design. So they need to make sure that their products work well. You know, one of my companies uh, at Highway One, uh, Loop Labs, makes a photo frame. Yeah, I've seen it. It's like an an analog TV. Uh, Yes. And so instead of trying to go high-end, as you might picture it with like a beautiful frame and like the screen and everything, they used a good screen, but they made it more a retro object. And they put I've it I've got to be honest with you, it kind of reminded me of the Chumbi. Sort of, sort of. <laughs> hopefully, which, hopefully which at the time I thought was, was the coolest thing ever. <laughs> yeah, but they put in mechanical knobs. And because right. it's bigger, they have a big battery, they have speakers, and they have a little camera. Right. And so it'll be able to do a lot of different things, all while still meeting that basic function. And it's more iMac than MacBook Pro. Got it. So a bit more of a zig. Well, listen, uh, Brady, it's been really great catching up again after all these years and uh, hearing about what you're doing. So thank you for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds.